Welcome back to Balagan. In our previous episode, we discussed with our guest, Dr. Moshe Fuchsman-Shahal, about the social and economical impact that Israel had after the political change in power in 1977. And now we will touch two other aspects that have made significant impact on Israel as well. The first one is, of course, foreign policy. And the second one is security. Or if to be more uh, focused, we're going to discuss the peace treaty with Egypt, what was happening on the other hand with what we know as the Palestinian problem, and eventually we'll touch the first Lebanon war. So Moshe, welcome back to Balagan. Thank you very much for having me again, Kobe. Our Very pleasure. Nice Thank you. So let's discuss the peace treaty with Egypt. I mean, Menachem Begin, one of his uh, campaign parts was Aflo Sha'al. That was in Hebrew. And the free translation is not a single territory. What made uh, Menachem Begin, you know, right. move forward and uh, make a peace treaty that eventually gave almost the whole of the Sinai Peninsula back to the Egyptians? Well, first of all, uh, I think Menachem Begin had this uh, by signing the peace accords with Egypt. I think he, from that time, we have the phrase in Israel who says that only the right can make peace. And like you said in the beginning, that Menachem Begin, the leader of the Israeli right, the man who was the hardliner, very hawkish, of the Israeli politics, who always was on the right side and uh, was against, a lot of time, the negotiations with mediators from the States, from the UN. We remember the Rogers plan and other plan. How come that he suddenly, he's the man who brought peace, and actually, I would say, he's the man who put an end to the independence war. Because, you know, taking away Egypt from the cycle of violence from the southern front, we have to remember that Egypt was the strongest and the biggest Arab country that surrounds Israel. And by taking it away from this circle that uh, is all around Israel, was actually finishing the independence war. You know, uh, Egypt was, uh, I think, Israel's biggest and strongest enemy. We had uh, thousands of uh, soldiers who died in the wars uh, against Egypt. I, for once, uh, named after my uncle, whose plane was shot down in the Suez Canal during the War of Attrition. So actually, you're right. He was, you know, it was quite a surprise that he made the peace with Egypt. And I think that perhaps we should say a few words about the peace process. So Menachem Begin, he's been elected on May 17th. There was the election. In June, he got the majority in the Knesset, June 77. On the 4th of July, and you know what is... On the 4th of July, there was the main, the ceremony barbecue in the house of the American ambassador. He sees the, the Romanian ambassador and he goes to him, the prime minister, and tell him, I would like to come and visit the President Ceausescu in Bucharest. And this was actually, he did how he started peace process because President Ceausescu was the best friend of Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt. And he went there. It was his second visit after a visit to the United States. And he started uh, transferring all kinds of messages about his willingness to make peace. And afterwards, sending uh, Moshe Dayan, the foreign minister, to Morocco in an alias uh, with a wig and with you know dark glasses. Nobody would recognize him. 
and starting uh, you know secret negotiation. And on the November 77, when Sadat goes to his parliament and say, I'm ready to come to the Knesset, to the Israeli parliament, and to make peace and to deal with peace, this was actually the outcome of those secret negotiations that Begin held for months. And since then, we remember we had uh, in 78 Camp David Accords in September, and in March of 79, signing the peace treaty and so on. So this is a few words about the timeline that we are speaking about. And of course, we should remember Jimmy Carter, who was very active, a very active player in bringing the sides and having disagreement. So how come Menachem Begin actually did it? Well, you have to remember that when Menachem Begin was elected, he found himself in front of um, Jimmy Carter, was the most pro-Palestinian president that was ever sought in the White House. And for him, uh, I think Menachem Begin understood that he needed to do something to take away this pressure of President Carter for himself. And then uh, I think he understood that in order to do it, his main goal was actually to start negotiation with Egypt. And by that, uh, gaining some political time, in order to do the changes that he wanted to do in Judea and Samaria. And we will get to it uh, soon, but uh, I think this was his main goal. And um, also, uh, he wanted to do you know, direct negotiation with Egypt, because uh, President Carter wanted the Geneva Convention with the Russians and so on. So I think this was his way to bypass think, all the initiatives of Carter, the Carter initiatives. And um, this is how we started the peace process. Yeah, but since he was such a hawk and, you know, a right wing, that his main agenda was actually, as we said, not a single uh, piece of land, you know, to bring back. How did he justify it? And I mean, well, you made it clear that, uh, you know, Egypt was our biggest enemy at that time. Gamal Abdel Nasser, the former leader, uh, not Sadat, of course, was the one who was uh, pushing the Arab worlds to go against Israel. And um, Sadat was actually acting differently. But was it just a matter of trust or uh, Israel didn't need the Sinai Peninsula for security measurements? Okay, so, um, right, so... Actually, a few things that you said that we need to address. So first of all, Afshal, as you said, Begin's plan was uh, for years, he said, uh, Afshal, that's mean that uh, I'm not giving a piece of land, but he meant it concerning Judea and Samaria, the Gaza Strip. Begin was the man of, uh, he was a very ideological leader. And he saw a difference, a main difference between what he saw, the historical land of Israel, who starts from the sea and ends in the... Jordan River, and concerning the Sinai, he always says Israel will stay in the Sinai Peninsula, but he always added, as long as we won't have a peace agreement. And he said, when I will read war, I will like to put my house in Yamit, or in Alei Sinai, actually, which was another settlement in the Sinai Peninsula. But always he, I think he mentioned that uh, for him, and, you know, his point of view was that there is a big difference. He saw the Sinai Peninsula, he didn't saw it as the uh, land of Israel. He didn't say it as a part of the land of Israel. It wasn't the map that uh, he always showed to uh, people from his beginning, even since his time in the Beitar movement in Poland 
and afterwards as the leader of the opposition, the map was the map of the greater Israel from the sea to the Jordan River without the Sinai Peninsula. And for him, he thought that if we can have the Sinai Peninsula being uh, demilitarized, it would be enough. And I think he was ready to pay this price in order to take a little bit of the international pressure from him. And as he knew, as long that uh, he's uh, in the negotiation with Egypt and Jimmy Carter wanted to see progress, wanted to see an achievement in his foreign policy. And you have to remember that he have dealing with Iran that is becoming, uh, that Ayatollah Khomeini is arriving to Iran and uh, the hostage in the American embassy and so on. So this was, the, I think, the biggest achievement of Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter knew it. And I think with the negotiation, Jimmy Carter understood that he can't pressure Begin too much on the Palestinian side, you know, if he wants to have this achievement with Egypt. So this was the first point. The second point is to say, I think there is a change because if you remember Golda Meir, who used to say there is no Palestinian people and I'm a Palestinian and so on. Yes, there is a change. And here, I think Begin really saw for once, on one hand, he saw the importance of Judea and Samaria as a part of the land of Israel. He saw it very important economically, geographically, demographically, on, on all, all sides. He saw it as a very important land that Israel, for him, could not survive without. It wasn't just a thing. He said, we cannot survive without Judea and Samaria. If there will be a Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria, this is the end of Israel for him. This was his point of view. And on the other hand, he really thought about the human rights of the Palestinian. So he tried to have this plan, and this is how he arrived to the autonomy plan, in order to try to, how do you combine with those two values? On one hand, keeping Judea and Samaria. On the other hand, giving the Palestinian as much rights as you can give them without jeopardizing Israeli control over the territory. And he came to the Knesset and then to Jimmy Carter with this plan, and he said, we will give them uh, autonomy. But uh, actually, if you look at the autonomy plan of Menachem Begin, what is an autonomy? Autonomy is self-rule. And self-rule, we are speaking about usually a local parliament and so on. But if you're looking at his plan, you can see that he has this kind of 13 members uh, council that has been elected, and they are dealing with uh, matters of water, of uh, municipality, and so on. So on the one hand, they try to market it as, yes, we are giving uh, autonomy for the Palestinians, and so on. But if you are looking at the plan, you can see that uh, begging doesn't mean actually self-rule, but more, uh, I would say, kind of a municipality plus authorities. This is how he arrived with it. And uh, um, there was also, you know, every time that the Carter understood and tried to pressure him and so on, he said, I will not sign any agreement, not with Egypt and not the Palestinians. And you have to remember that this was uh, the agreement in the Camp David was comprehensive peace for the Middle East and with a plan for the Palestinians and a plan for Egypt. And uh, Begin uh, almost uh, um, left Camp David without an agreement because uh, he very much insisted on his values concerning that. And if I can give you one example, very important example, for sure. instance, in the agreement in Camp David, Begin didn't want to sign the agreement because one letter, he said Palestinian people, he wanted to do it with small p and Carter wanted it with capital P. And he said, no, Palestinian people with uh, 
a small p and not a capital p is mean uh, people it's mean you know human beings but if you will write people with a big p it's mean it's a nation, nation. <laughs> so you can see by that example that uh, begging so much that i'm not signing it if there would be a capital p i want it to be a small p and only with that example that he was ready to you know not signing the agreement after the long days in camp david after everybody are waiting and you can see by that what was his real intentions amazing well eventually we stayed with the palestinian problem and then you know we're not going to discuss further about the peace treaty with egypt because you explained well how we could justify you know withdrawing from the sinai peninsula and you were talking about his love and belief in a bigger israel and eventually the biblical israel as we know it or biblical judea but on one hand he was talking about some sort of an autonomy to the palestinians on the other hand he never annexed the gaza strip and the west bank so what was the policy i mean we do know that the settlement movement grew a lot in that time in his era so right. can you well, explain this uh, balagan over here <laughs> yes, it was a uh, balagan. So actually, if it was up to Begin, he would annex uh, Judea and Samaria and the Gaza Strip. But uh, first of all, he didn't have the majority. You have to remember that even his party, the Likud, also members for the election, and also his coalition, there was a lot of members who say, we are not willing to annex Judea and Samaria. So he did it. What he did, he actually de facto actually annexed Judea and Samaria because what he did, you know, when he came to power, there were 25 settlements in Judea and Samaria. And when he resigned after um, six years, there were 125. So he actually, the immense of the territory, multiplied by five, that's actually, multiplied by five, the number of settlements, the number of settlers. And also he actually created the tools that for 40 years, all of the right-wing government are using in order to build more and more settlements in Judea and Samaria, because he came to the Jewish agency, to the what we call oh, the Zionist agency, what we call the Machlakali Yeshvut, and he recognized this part that is, uh, doesn't suffer with the bureaucracy of the government, which is like a kind of an NGO organization who gets money from the government who will actually be the tools that by that tool he could build more and more settlements and also during his time tens of thousands of acres actually of territory in Judea and Samaria became state territory and still building day settlements in Judea and Samaria on those territories so a lot of things that he did then actually shaped I think the policy of Israel for decades forward. And as you said, so Begin really planned it very carefully. He found the tool. He actually found a way to take those thousands of acres of land into land that is owned by the government or by the state. And that is the infrastructure that until today, Israel is building settlements all over Judea and Samaria using the tools, as we said, Uh, through right? right, which is, uh, I don't think it's Karen Kayemet, but it's which means it's kind of a branch of the Zionist uh, Federation, and it doesn't suffer with the state bureaucracy, as we said. 
And I think also, uh, if you're looking about Labo, Labo also built settlements in Judea and Samaria, but they built it only, you know, what we call the Alon plan. That's mean only around the Jordan River and around Jerusalem and so on. And it was much more based on security measures. Yeah. But uh, Menachem Begin settlements were based on ideological, I would say, measure, ideological uh, consideration. He built actually in places which are very crowded with Palestinian cities and towns in the north of Shomron and so on, places where labor uh, didn't want to put settlements there and there were a lot of crises. And Begin actually, I think until today, considered to be the founding father of the settlements in Judea and Samaria. And during one of the government meetings, Ezer Weizmann, his minister of defense, who was much more to the left for Menachem Begin, I asked him, why do we spend so much money and so much time about this project that only uh, makes a lot of our allies being apart from us, a lot of criticism in the world and so on. And Menachem Begin looked at him and said, Ezer, my time will come and I will go up to heaven and they will ask me, why do you deserve to enter in our gates? I would say, Alon more." And Al Moray is actually one of the settlements in Judea and Samaria, which was very important for Menachem Begin. So you can understand from his answer how committed he was, how important it was for him, that policy. Uh, it wasn't just political policy and so on. It was really very important for Menachem Begin. What's an ideology? Yes, it was ideology. And uh, I think he saw it as the core ideology of the Herut movement. And when I wrote my book about the Mahapach, about the evolution of 77 and his government, I remember interviewing Geula Cohen. And she said that uh, Begin used to say to his wife, I love you like I love Eretz Israel. That means like I love the land of Israel. That means, you know, how he was committed. And when he wanted to say to his wife how much he loves her, he said, I love you like I love Eretz Israel. So yes, he was very committed ideologically. And from childhood, uh, during the Beitar movement, and so on, until uh, his death. And even if we're looking at where he wanted to be buried, so he wanted to be buried in East Jerusalem, in Mount Olives, which is okay. actually outside the Green Line, in the territories that Israel uh, took from, over. From Jordan, uh, yes. From Jordan after 67. So you can see, and he's the only prime minister who is buried outside the Green Line. So you can see how even by that, his last decision where he wanted to be buried is also concerning this policy. But he also said that he wanted to be buried by his friends, if I remember correctly, right? It was, right. Uh, he, he was said, buried well, by two Irgun uh, members. Um, well, Fajshan and Barazani, one from the yeah. Lechi and one from the Irgun, uh, the Sturmgang, what we call. But uh, he said, I want to be buried in Mount Olives. Where in Mount Olives? Near those two guys. So that's mean he wanted to say, I wanted to bury there, where there. So there is a difference because he wanted really, Mount Olives was the important thing. And where in Mount Olives? He said there, near those two guys, Panchen and Barazani, who were two uh, members of the Irgun, of the underground that he commanded and it was very important for him. Now, not all of his coalition members actually liked the settlement movement and the whole concept of uh, expanding our, uh, I would say, uh, hold in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. 
But he had a really strong ally named Ariel Sharon, who was for years considered to be the bulldozer of the settlement movement. But Ariel Sharon was also the minister of security. And he dragged back in, or you may say differently, and you can enlighten us on that, to, the, I would say, the first Israeli war that was considered to be not exactly necessary. Right, right, right. As you said, uh, Ariel Sharon was uh, the Minister of Agriculture and the uh, Bergen government and so on, was actually one of Bergen's biggest allies in uh, uh, what we say in this revolution concerning Judea and Samaria and bringing the infrastructure of uh, the Jewish settlements uh, there. And as you said, he was also the Minister of Defense and dragged uh, Israel into long year of war in Lebanon, of staying in Lebanon for a lot of years. And uh, concerning, if you said, uh, taking or dragging Israel, so Begin in the Knesset one time was asked about Ariel Sharon, and he said, I think member of Knesset from the left, Yossi Sarit, said, you don't know what he's doing, and he is taking the government, and the government doesn't do, and the government all the time is being surprised by him, and so on. And he said to him, well, we always know what our Minister of Defense, Ariel Sharon, is doing. Sometimes we know before, and sometimes we don't know after, but we always know. So yes, even Begin, uh, I think, uh, I understood the things uh, that are happening. But um, when Begin came to power, uh, Begin is coming to power with an ideology of war of choice and war of no choice. And um, in one of his main, I would say, speeches, in the army, in one of the most uh, important form of the leaders of the army, of the officers, the high-ranking officers, he spoke about his ideology. And he said, look, in the history of Israel, we have war of no choice. The war of independence was a war of no choice. We were attacked by the neighboring uh, Arab countries. The war of uh, October 73, the war of Yom Kippur, also was no choice. But he said, we had war also of choice. And he said that we have the what we call the Suez uh, campaign war against Egypt in '56. We have the war of uh, the Six Day War that we were surrounded, but we could uh, wait it until all the Arab countries would attack us and not start the war before. And he said the difference is that war of no choice. First of all, the number of casualties the Israeli had was by the thousands. The War of Independence, we had 5,000. The War of Yom Kippur, also thousands of soldiers. And we were on the brink of uh, destruction. The Arabs almost gained their purpose in destroying the state of Israel. And he said, and the War of Choice was important because they prevented a war of no choice. We had to win to war, but we did it because in '56 the Arab army got a lot of weapons from the Soviet Union and became very, very strong much stronger than the Israeli army, and we had to prevent it, and we know that they are going to attack us and destroy us. And also in the Six-Day War, all the Arab army has signed an agreement of attacking us together, and we didn't wait it until they will start. We did it before, and we prevented perhaps a war of uh, almost destruction of the state of Israel. And he saw Yasser Arafat in Lebanon, who building an infrastructure of terror and he saw it also infrastructure that destabilizing 
the Jordanian leadership and the Lebanonian leadership and so on. And he saw the beginning of what could emerge as something that can jeopardize the security of Israel and something that he had to prevent before. So first of all, Begin did have this ideology that uh, led him. And uh, this was also why he thought that we need to take care of the situation there and to take Arafat and the PLO and to try to take them out of the area or to destroy them or to make them leave the area to another place and not jeopardize the whole uh, area and uh, so on. But I think that he wanted a limited operation arriving until perhaps Beirut, cleaning the area, making the PLO leave and then returning. I think Ariel Sharon had a different uh, point of view, and he saw a much bigger plan. This is how we started, and as we know, war, we know how they start, we don't know how they are ending. And I think uh, this was also one of the things that made Menachem Begin decide that he wants to leave office and to resign, because the main, there was a lot of casualties that were every day of soldiers, Israeli soldiers that uh, have been killed. And... Uh, I think this was also took a big toll of his premiership and until the end. So he left office in 1983. But eventually, right. everything that we discussed actually had an ongoing impact on Israel. If we're talking about the ultra-Orthodox, they are still the strongest ally that the Likud has in the Knesset. If we're talking about the periphery, we can discuss whether the, you know, the Likud party really helped them or they didn't help them, but they kept loyal to the Likud until this day, the majority of them. And if we're talking about the economy, then Israel is, of course, a lot less socialist and a lot more capitalistic today. And if we're talking about the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, without talking about, you know, whether we think it's right or wrong, In the eyes of, let's say, the average right-winger, it's almost a full success without the annexation part that I think is some part of the right-wing actually wish that we will annex the West Bank and Gaza. And if we're talking about Lebanon, he did succeed there. I mean, up to a point. I mean, uh, Yasser Arafat and the PLO actually left Lebanon, but... The state of Israel actually remained in Lebanon in some sort of a way until 2001, until May of 2001. I think we both uh, served at this era. So uh, right, we know that we it, wasn't, it wasn't always pleasant. Right, right. And if you're thinking, we have to also to mention, if we're making about security, also begging decision to send the Israeli Air Force to destroy the Iraqi and... Uh, nuclear facility, which is also what we call the Begin Doctrine, that is uh, very important about Israel won't let any of its enemies uh, who wants to destroy it to hold nuclear weapons. We saw afterwards Prime Minister Olmert sending the Israeli airplanes to destroy the facilities in Syria. And we are seeing now how Israel is so alarmed with what is going on with Iran. So also this, you can see being very hawkish, he made this doctrine of saying, we will not let any of our enemies hold nuclear weapons. 
And uh, also, I think another thing which is very important, I think if you are speaking about his concept of security, uh, is the self-reliance concept that Begin initiated in 77. And I think there are three main decisions we need to mention. First one was the, his decision to start manufacturing the Merkava tank, the Israeli tank, which is considered one of the best tanks in the world, Merkava. And uh, until he arrived, it was still on planning board and so on. And Begin said, I will give the money, and it, he needed a lot of money to start manufacture our own tanks. The second decision was building our own jet fighter, and, which yeah. called De La Vie. Also, it was another decision of the Begin government. And I think the last one was about initiating a space project in order to launch a military satellite called OFEC. And uh, he decided in 82. And uh, in 87, I think, or 88, already Israel launched its first uh, satellite, military satellite, and became, I think, the fifth or sixth member of this uh, very... Yeah, of the uh, Space say, Club, uh, as they like the to space call club, it. Yes. And this is the self-reliance of having our own tank, our own manufacturer jet plane, our own satellites. And this is also we have to mention of Begin uh, heritage that uh, uh, really also impact until today. Yeah, and you did, you mentioned Operation Opera and actually in uh, episode 42 in the first season of this podcast, I actually had the privilege of interviewing uh, Colonel uh, Zevik Raz, who was the squadron leader of this attack. Until today, it's considered to be one of the most craziest uh, military operations ever held, not just by Israel, but by any, any air force in the world. It's still being taught as a huge <laughs> achievement. Right, and you know that the head of the Mossad was against it. And also the head of the military intelligence was against it. And they didn't find that uh, it will do the impact that it did. And uh, Begin got his majority in the government, although of their objection to this uh, plan. So, yeah. And this is also, I think, part of his, uh, of his strategy of war of uh, no choice and war of choice, of creating being more hawkish in order to prevent a catastrophe in the future. And he actually prevented because, you know, that although the opposition was very much against in 81, when he decided on this attack and told the Air Force to go and destroy this facility, in 91, 10 years later, when we had missiles from uh, Saddam yeah, Hussein yeah, during yeah. the Gulf War, there were 100 members of Knesset out of the 120 that signed a letter saying to him that we want to say to you, thank you for your decision, because we can't even imagine what would have happened if today Saddam Hussein had the nuclear weapon with all of those missiles. And uh, I don't know if the United States would have taken this decision of uh, entering the Gulf and liberating Kuwait and afterwards going to Iraq if Saddam Hussein did hold Nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons. Right? Yeah. And when Begin decided, and when the Israeli Air Force went to Iraq and destroyed the facility, there was also, you know, almost sanctions from the United States on Israel. Uh, there were planes that were supposed to arrive, and uh, Reagan decided not to give them only after 
months and months later, and there was a lot of criticism in the States for this action. But afterwards, I think they saw the, how the importance was this decision. Yeah, it was definitely one of the most important decisions. It brought, I wouldn't call peace, but stability to the Middle East. And it kept Iraq from becoming, you know, a nuclear force, which uh, definitely would have been uh, a game changer in the Middle East. Moshe, I really want to thank you for uh, sharing the story with us. I really hope that your book will be translated to English as well, so our listeners can enjoy your book the same way I am, but in English. Thank you very much. <laughs> I hope so too. I, if there is anybody in the crowd that is listening and wants me to publish the book in, uh, in the United States in English, I would be happy. Well, let's check it out. Maybe I can... Uh, <laughs> Thank you very, very much, Moshe, for being with us. It was a pleasure, you know, hearing you and uh, learning from you. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Kobe. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.